Caesar Augustus, Part Three, of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquilius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquilius, translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Caesar Augustus, Part Three, Paragraphs Thirty-Three Through Fifty. He was himself assiduous in his functions as a judge, and would sometimes prolong his sittings even into the night. If he were indisposed, his litter was placed before the tribunal, or he administered justice reclining on his couch at home, displaying always not only the greatest attention, but extreme lenity. To save a culprit, who evidently appeared guilty of parricide, from the extreme penalty of being sewn up in a sack, because none were punished in that manner, but such as confessed the fact, he is said to have interrogated him thus. Surely you did not kill your father, did you? And when, in a trial of a case about a forged will, all those who had signed it were liable to the penalty of the Cornelian law, he ordered that his colleagues on the tribunal should not only be furnished with the two tablets by which they were decided, guilty or not guilty, but a third likewise, ignoring the offense, of those who should appear to have given their signatures through any deception or mistake. All appeals and causes between inhabitants of Rome he assigned every year to the praetor of the city, and where provincials were concerned, to men of consular rank, to one of whom the business of each province was referred. Some laws he abrogated, and he made some new ones, such as the sumptuary law, that, relating to adultery and the violation of chastity, the law against bribery in elections, and likewise that for the encouragement of marriage. Having been more severe in his reform of this law than the rest, he found the people utterly adverse to submit to it, unless the penalties were abolished or mitigated, besides allowing an interval of three years after a wife's death, and increasing the premiums on marriage. The equestrian order clamored loudly at a spectacle in the theater, for its total repeal, whereupon he sent for the children of Germanicus, and showed them, partly sitting upon his own lap, and partly on their father's, imitating by his looks and gestures that they ought not to think it a grievance to follow the example of that young man. But finding that the force of law was eluded by marrying girls under the age of puberty, and by frequent changes of wives, he limited the time for consummation after espousals, and imposed restrictions on divorce. By two separate scrutinies, he reduced to their former number and splendor the Senate, which had been swamped by a disorderly crowd, for they were now more than a thousand, and some of them very mean persons, who, after Caesar's death, had been chosen by dint of interest and bribery, and so they had the nickname of Orcini among the people. The first of these scrutinies was left to themselves, each senator naming another, but the last was conducted by himself and Agrippa. On this occasion he is believed to have taken his seat, as he presided, with a coat of mail under his tunic and a sword by his side, and with ten of the stoutest men of senatorial rank who were his friends standing round his chair. Cordus Cremutius relates that no senator was suffered to approach him, except singly, and after having his bosom searched for secreted daggers. Some he obliged to have the grace of declining the office. These he allowed to retain the privileges of wearing the distinguishing dress, occupying the seats at the solemn spectacles, and of feasting publicly, 
reserved to the senatorial order. Yet those who were chosen and approved of might perform their functions under more solemn obligations, and with less inconvenience, he ordered that every senator, before he took his seat in the house, should pay his devotions with an offering of frankincense and wine at the altar of that god in whose temple the senate then assembled, and that their stated meetings should only be twice in the month, namely on the calends and ides, and that in the months of September and October, a certain number only, chosen by lot, such as the law required to give validity to a decree, should be required to attend. For himself he resolved to choose every six months a new council, by whom he might consult previously upon such affairs as he judged proper, at any time to lay before the full senate. He also took the votes of the senators upon any subject of importance, not according to custom, nor in regular order, but as he pleased, that every one might hold himself ready to give his opinion, rather than a mere vote of assent. He also made several other alterations in the management of public affairs, among which were these following, that the acts of the Senate should not be punished, that the magistrates should not be sent into provinces immediately after the expiration of their office, that the proconsuls should have a certain sum assigned them out of the treasury for mules and tents, which used before to be contracted for by the government with private persons, that the management of the treasury should be transferred from the city quaestors to the praetors, or those who had already served in the latter office, and that the decemviri, who called together the court of the one hundred, which had been formally summoned by those who had filled the office of quaestor. To augment the number of persons employed in the administration of the state, he devised several new offices, such as surveyors of public buildings, of the roads, the aqueducts, and the bed of the Tiber, for the distribution of corn to the people, the prefecture of the city, a triumvirate for the election of the senators, and another for inspecting the several troops of the equestrian order, as often as it was necessary. He revived the office of censor, which had been long disused, and increased the number of praetors. He likewise required that whenever the consulship was conferred upon him, he should have two colleagues instead of one, but his proposal was rejected, all the senators declaring by acclamation that he abated his high majesty quite enough in not filling the office alone, and consenting to share it with another. He was unsparing in the reward of military merit, having granted to above thirty generals the honor of the greater triumph, besides which he took care to have triumphal decorations voted by the senate for more than that number that the sons of senators might become early acquainted with the administration of affairs, he permitted them, at the age when they took the garb of manhood, to assume also the distinction of the senatorian robe, with its broad border, and to be present at the debates in the Senate House. When they entered the military service, he not only gave them the rank of military tribunes in the legions, but likewise the command of the auxiliary horse, and that all might have the opportunity of acquiring military experience, he commonly joined two sons of senators in command of each troop of horse. He frequently reviewed the troops of the equestrian order, reviving the ancient custom of a cavalcade, which had been long laid aside. But he did not suffer anyone to be obliged by an accuser to dismount while he passed in review, as had formerly been the practice. For such as were infirm with age, or any way deformed, he allowed them to send their horses before them, coming on foot to answer to their names, when the muster-roll was called over soon afterwards. 
he permitted those who had attained the age of thirty-five years, and desired not to keep their horse any longer, to have the privilege of giving it up. With the assistance of ten senators, he obliged each of the Roman knights to give an account of his life. In regard to those who fell under his displeasure, some were punished, others had a mark of infamy set against their names. The most part he only reprimanded, but not in the same terms. The mildest mode of reproof was by delivering them tablets, the contents of which, confined to themselves, they were to read on the spot. Some he disgraced for borrowing money at low interest, and letting it out again upon usurious profit. In the election of tribunes of the people, if there were not a sufficient number of senatorian candidates, he nominated others from the equestrian order, granting them the liberty, after the expiration of their office, to continue in whichsoever of the two orders they pleased. As most of the knights had been much reduced in their estates by the civil wars, and therefore durst not sit to see the public games in the theatre in the seats allotted to their order, for fear of the penalty provided by the law in that case, he enacted that none were liable to it, who had themselves or their parents had ever possessed a knight's estate. He took the census of the Roman people, street by street, and that the people might not be too taken from their business to receive the distribution of corn, it was his intention to deliver tickets three times a year for four months respectively, but at their request he continued the former regulation that they should receive their share monthly. He revived the former law of elections, endeavoring by various penalties to suppress the practice of bribery. Upon the day of election he distributed to the freedmen of the Fabian and Scaptian tribes, in which he was himself enrolled, a thousand sesterces each, that they might look for nothing from any of the candidates. Considering it of extreme importance to preserve the Roman people pure and untainted with a mixture of foreign or servile blood, he not only bestowed the freedom of the city with a sparing hand, but laid some restriction upon the practice of manumitting slaves. When Tiberius interceded with him for the freedom of Rome, in behalf of a Greek client of his, he wrote to him for answer, I shall not grant it, unless he comes himself, and satisfies me that he has just grounds for the application. And when Livia begged the freedom of the city for a tributary Gaul, he refused it, but offered to release him from payment of taxes, saying, I shall sooner suffer some loss in my exchequer than that the citizenship of Rome be rendered too common. Not content with interposing many obstacles to either the partial or complete emancipation of slaves, by quibbles respecting the number, condition, and difference of those who were to be manumitted, he likewise enacted that none who had been put in chains or tortured should ever obtain the freedom of the city in any degree. He endeavored also to restore the old habit and dress of the Romans, and seeing once, in an assembly of the people, a crowd of gray cloaks, he exclaimed with indignation, See there, Romanos rerum dominos, egentumque togatum. Rome's conquered sons, lords of the widespread globe, stalk proudly in the toga's graceful robe. And he gave orders to the aediles not to permit, in future, any Roman to be present in the forum or circus unless they took off their short coats and wore the toga. He displayed his munificence to all the ranks of the people on various occasions. However, upon bringing the treasure belonging to the kings of Egypt into the city, in his Alexandrian triumph, he made money so plentiful that interest fell, and the price of land rose considerably. And afterwards, as often as large sums of money came into his possession, 
by means of confiscations, he would lend it free of interest, for a fixed term, to such as could give security for the double of what was borrowed. The estate necessary to qualify a senator, instead of 800,000 sesterces, the former standard, he ordered, for the future, to be 1,200,000, and those who had not so much, he made good the deficiency. He often made donations to the people, but generally of different sums, sometimes 400, sometimes 300, or 250 sesterces, upon which occasions he extended his bounty even to young boys, who before were not used to receive anything, until they arrived at eleven years of age. In a scarcity of corn, he would frequently let them have it at a very low price, or none at all, and double the number of the money tickets. But to show that he was a prince who regarded more the good of his people than their applause, he reprimanded them very severely upon their complaining of the scarcity and dearness of wine. My son-in-law, Agrippa, he said, has sufficiently provided for quenching your thirst by the great plenty of water with which he has supplied the town. Upon their demanding a gift which he had promised them, he said, I am a man of my word. But upon their importuning him for one which he had not promised, he issued a proclamation upbraiding them for their scandalous impudence, at the same time telling them, I shall now give you nothing, whatever I may have intended to do. With the same strict firmness, when, upon a promise he had made of a donative, he found many slaves had been emancipated and enrolled among the citizens, he declared that no one should receive anything who was not included in the promise, and he gave the rest less than he had promised them, in order that the amount he had set apart might hold out. On one occasion, in a season of great scarcity, which it was difficult to remedy, he ordered out of the city the troops of slaves brought for sale, the gladiators belonging to the masters of defense, and all foreigners, excepting physicians and the teachers of the liberal sciences. Part of the domestic slaves were likewise ordered to be dismissed. When, at last, plenty was restored, he writes thus, I was much inclined to abolish forever the practice of allowing the people corn at the public expense, because they trust so much to it, that they are too lazy to till their lands. But I did not persevere in my design, as I felt that the practice would some time or other be revived by one ambitious of popular favor. However, he so managed the affair ever afterwards that so much account was taken of husbandmen and traders as of the idle populace. In the number, variety, and magnificence of his public spectacles, he surpassed all former examples. Four and twenty times, he says, he treated the people with games upon his own account and three and twenty times for such magistrates who were either absent or not able to afford the expense. The performances took place sometimes in the different streets of the city, and upon several stages, by players in all languages. The same he did not only in the forum and amphitheater, but in the circus likewise, and in the septa, and sometimes he exhibited only the hunting of wild beasts. He entertained the people with wrestlers in the campus martius where wooden seats were erected for the purpose, and also with a naval fight, for which he excavated the ground near the Tiber, where there is now a grove of the Caesars. During these two entertainments he stationed guards in the city, lest, by robbers taking advantage of the small number of people left at home, it might be exposed to depredations. 
In the circus he exhibited chariot and foot races, and combats with wild beasts, in which the performers were often youths of the highest ranks. His favorite spectacle was the Trojan game, acted by a select number of boys, in parties differing in age and station, thinking that it was a practice both excellent in itself and sanctioned by ancient usage, that the spirit of the young nobles should be displayed in such exercises. Gaius Nonius Asperanus, who was lamed by a fall in this diversion, he presented with a golden collar, and allowed him and his posterity to bear the name of Torquati. But soon afterwards he gave up the exposition of this game, in consequence of a severe and bitter speech made in the Senate by Osinius Polio, the orator, in which he complained bitterly of the misfortune of Isorinius, his grandson, who likewise broke his leg in the same diversion. Sometimes he engaged Roman knights to act upon the stage, or to fight as gladiators, but only before the practice was prohibited by a decree of the Senate. Thenceforth, the only exhibition he made of that kind was that of a young man named Lucius, of a good family, who was not quite two feet in height, and weighed only seventeen pounds, but had a stentorian voice. In one of his public spectacles, he brought the hostages of the Parthians, the first ever sent to Rome from that nation, through the middle of the amphitheater, and placed them in the second tier of seats above him. He used likewise, at times, when there were no public entertainments, if anything was brought to Rome which was uncommon and might gratify curiosity, to expose it to public view in any place whatever, as he did a rhinoceros in the septa, a tiger upon a stage, and a snake fifty cubits long in the comitium. It happened that in the Circensian games, which he performed in consequence of a vow that he had taken ill and obliged to attend the thensai reclining in a litter, Another time, in the game celebrated for the opening of the theatre of Marcellus, the joints of his curile chair happened to give way. He fell on his back. And in the games exhibited by his grandsons, when the people were in such consternation, by an alarm raised that the theatre was falling, that all his efforts to reassure them and keep them quiet failed, he moved from his place and seated himself in that part of the theatre which was thought to be exposed to the most danger. He corrected the confusion and disorder with which the spectators took their seats at the public games, after an affront which was offered to an senator at Puteoli, for whom, in a crowded theatre, no one would make room. He therefore procured a decree of the Senate, that, in all public spectacles of any sort, and in any place whatever, the first tier of benches should be left empty for the accommodation of senators. He would not even permit the ambassadors of free nations nor those which were allies of Rome to sit in the orchestra, having found that some manumitted slaves had been sent under that character. He separated the soldiery from the rest of the people, and assigned to married plebeians their particular rows of seats. To the boys he assigned their own benches, and to their tutors the seats which were nearest it, ordering that none clothed in black should sit in the center of the circle. Nor would he allow any women to witness the combats of gladiators, except from the upper part of the theatre, although they formerly used to take their places promiscuously with the rest of the spectators. To the Vestal Virgins he granted seats in the theatre, reserved for them only, opposite the praetor's bench. He excluded, however, the whole female sex from seeing the wrestlers, so that in the games which he exhibited upon his accession to the office of high priest, he deferred producing a pair of combatants which the people called for, until the next morning, 
and intimated by proclamation his pleasure that no woman should appear in the theatre before five o'clock. He generally viewed the Circensian games himself from the upper rooms of the houses of his friends or freedmen, sometimes from the place appointed for the statues of the gods, sitting in the company with his wife and children. He occasionally absented himself from the spectacles for several hours, and occasionally for whole days, but not without first making an apology, and appointing substitutes to preside in his stead. When present, he never attended to anything else, either to avoid the reflections which he used to say were commonly made upon his father Caesar, for perusing letters and memorials, and making rescripts during the spectacles, or from the real pleasure he took in attending those exhibitions, of which he made no secret, he often candidly owning it. This he manifested frequently by presenting honorary crowns and handsome rewards to the best performers. In the games exhibited by others, and he was never present in any performances of the Greeks, without rewarding the most deserving, according to their merit. He took particular pleasure in witnessing pugilistic contests, especially those of the Latins, not only between combatants who had been trained scientifically, whom he often used to match with the Greek champions, but even between mobs of the lower classes fighting in streets and tilting at random, without any knowledge of the art. In short, he honored with his patronage all sorts of persons who contributed in any way to the success of the public entertainments. He not only maintained, but enlarged the privileges of the wrestlers. He prohibited combats of the gladiators where no quarter was given. He deprived the magistrates of the power of correcting the stage players, which by an ancient law was allowed them at, at all times and in all places, restricting their jurisdiction entirely to the time of performance and misdemeanors in the theatres. He would, however, admit of no abatement, and exacted with the utmost rigor the greatest exertions of the wrestlers and gladiators in their several encounters. He went so far in restraining the licentiousness of stage players, that upon discovering that Stefanio, a performer of the highest class, had married a woman with her hair cropped, and dressed in boys' clothes to await upon him at table, he ordered him to be whipped through all three theatres, and then banished him. Hylas, an actor of pantomimes, upon a complaint against him by the praetor, he commanded to be scourged in the court of his own house, which, however, was open to the public. And Pylades he not only banished from the city, but from Italy also, for pointing with his finger at a spectator, by whom he was hissed, and turning the eyes of the audience upon him. Having thus regulated the city and its concerns, he augmented the population of Italy by planting in it no less than twenty-eight colonies, and greatly improving it by public works and a beneficial application of the revenues. In rights and privileges he rendered it in a measure equal to the city itself, by inventing a new kind of suffrage, which the principal officers and magistrates of the colonies might take at home, and forward under seal to the city, against the time of the elections. To increase the number of persons of condition, and of children among the lower ranks, he granted the petitions of all those who requested the honor of doing military service on horseback as knights, provided their demands were seconded by the recommendation of the town in which they lived. And when he visited the several districts of Italy, he distributed a thousand sesterces a head to such of the lower class as presented him with sons or daughters. The most important provinces, which could not with ease or safety be entrusted to the government of annual magistrates, he reserved for his own administration. 
The rest he distributed by lot amongst the proconsuls, but sometimes he made exchanges, and frequently visited most of both kinds in person. Some cities in alliance with Rome, but which their great licentiousness were hastening to ruin, he deprived of their independence. Others which were much in debt he relieved and rebuilt such as had been destroyed by earthquakes. To those who could produce any instance of their having deserved well of the Roman people, he presented the freedom of Latium, or even that of the city. There is not, I believe, a province, except Africa and Sardinia, which he did not visit. After forcing Sextus Pompeius to take refuge in those provinces, he was indeed preparing to cross over from Sicily to them, but was prevented by continual and violent storms, and afterwards there was no occasion or call for such a voyage. Kingdoms, of which he had made himself master by the right of conquest, a few only excepted, he either restored to their former possessors, or conferred upon aliens. Between kings of alliance with Rome, he encouraged most intimate union, being always ready to promote or favor any proposal of marriage or friendship amongst them, and indeed treated them all with the same consideration, as if they were members and parts of the empire. To such as them as were minors or lunatics, he presented guardians, until they arrived at age, or recovered their senses, and the sons of many of them he brought up and educated with his own. With respect to the army, he distributed the legions and auxiliary troops throughout the several provinces. He stationed a fleet at Mycenae and another at Ravenna, for the protection of the upper and lower seas. A certain number of the forces were selected to occupy the posts in the city, and partly for his own bodyguard, but he dismissed the Spanish guard, which he retained about him until the fall of Antony, and also the Germans, whom he had amongst his guards until the defeat of Varus. Yet he never permitted a greater force than three cohorts in the city, and had no praetorian camps. The rest he quartered in the neighborhood of the nearest towns, in winter and summer camps. All the troops throughout the empire he reduced to one fixed model with regard to their pay and their pensions, determining these according to their rank in the army, the time they had served, and their private means, so that after their discharge they might not be tempted by age or necessities to join the agitators for a revolution. For the purpose of providing a fund, always ready to meet their pay and pensions, he instituted a military exchequer, and appropriated two taxes to that object. In order to obtain the earliest intelligence of what was passing in the provinces, he established posts, consisting at first of young men stationed at moderate distances along the military roads, and afterwards of regular couriers with fast vehicles, which appeared to him the most commodious, because the persons who were the bearers of dispatches, written on the spot, might then be questioned about the business as occasioned occurred. In sealing letters patent, rescripts, or epistles, he at first used the figure of a sphinx, afterwards the head of Alexander the Great, and at last his own, engraved by the hand of Discorides, which practice was retained by the succeeding emperors. He was extremely precise in dating his letters, putting down exactly the time of day or night at which they were dispatched. End of Caesar Augustus, Part 3